Father, we turn our attention to you this morning in your word. And we lift up, Father, the, the truth of it. And we testify to the power of it in our lives. And we do that, Father, in many ways, but perhaps none better than just in the fact that we come here on a Sunday. Among all the many places that are gathered today in your name, believers in many places, Father, we have come in this place, and we do so, Father, principally because we have a devotion to the study of your word. And we do that, Father, in an age and in a culture in which the study of your word has fallen away for so many. And we, we mourn that, Father, we regret that. And yet, Father, we know that through you and your power, through the Spirit, everything is possible. You have not ceased to be on your throne. You do not cease to be sovereignly running the affairs of your creation. And your word is no less powerful, Father, and it is no less at work. And so we must rest in the knowledge, Father, that your purposes are being met even now in the way that many have turned aside from the truths and and lessons of of your word and have turned back to myths and are seeking for things of their own making. Father, we know that this is the world we live in. And Father, we ourselves are guilty at times of that very same thing. So we understand, Father, the temptation. But Lord, I pray that because we have spent time in your word, you would spend time in our hearts, molding us into the image of Christ. We pray that because we've given attention to your word, that you would give us the attention of others who would learn from what we can impart from what we have heard. We pray that all the, the things we do here, the, the regular routine and the, the new ideas and the faithfulness of so many to the, to the Word and to the work we do here, Father, I pray all of this would come together in some way according to Your will to further Your kingdom. Even if we are not capable of seeing ways to put it together, to put it to work, even if our vision is limited and our energy is waning, nonetheless, Father, because we've devoted ourselves in faithfulness to Your Word and to You, through Your Scriptures, I pray, Father, You would faithfully return that in some way and use it to your glory and let today be one more opportunity for that to happen Father we pray this in Jesus name Amen can there be anything better on a Sunday morning when you're sitting in church than to hear a story of treachery and murder and cursing and jealousy and that's what we have before us today in the pages of scripture in the story of Judges here and it it is this way because this is the legacy that Gideon left for the people of Israel and for us in Scripture. This legacy of, of his heirs fighting amongst one another in this grand civil war. His death gave way to this civil war of sorts. His 70 heirs, you remember, have already been put to death. They've now been reduced to just one son who's hiding for his life in a well somewhere. And then you have Abimelech, the son of one of Gideon's slave wives, who is now attempting to rule Israel as a king. Now, Abimelech is the man we studied last time. He's that ungodly man. He's not a judge, much less a king. But he is determined to hold on to power through any means necessary. In that respect, he's just like any other despot. And he has enemies, like every despot will. And this morning we get to see how the enemies of this man come against him in this role that he's taken upon himself and are doing so under God's direction, as we learned last week. God creating this outcome for his own good purposes. Let's pick up where we left off. I'm backing up actually a couple of verses from last time we taught. But it gives us some better context. So we'll start again in chapter 9, verse 22. Let's read there. Now Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. Then God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. So that the violence done to the seventy sons of Jeroboam might come and their blood might be laid on Abimelech their brother who killed them. 
and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. The men of Shechem sent men in ambush against him on the tops of the mountains, and they robbed all who might pass by them along the road, and it was told to Abimelech. Now Gael, the son of Abed, came with his relatives and crossed over into Shechem, and the men of Shechem put their trust in him. They went out into the field and gathered the grapes of their vineyards and trod them and held a festival, and they went into the house of their god and ate and drank and cursed Abimelech. Then Gael, the son of Abed, said, Who is Abimelech, and who is Shechem, that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbaal, and is Zebul not his lieutenant? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem, but why should we serve him? Would, therefore, that this people were under my authority? Then I would remove Abimelech. And he said to Abimelech, Increase your army and come out. When Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gael, the son of Ebed, his anger burned. He sent messengers to Abimelech deceitfully, saying, Behold, Gael, the son of Abed, and his relatives have come to Shechem, and behold, they are stirring up the city against you. Now therefore arise by night, you and the people who are with you, and lie and wait in the field. In the morning, as soon as the sun is up, you shall rise early and rush upon the city. And behold, when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you shall do to them whatever you can. Abimelech settles, we're told, into this limited form of ruling for around three years. Now remember, as I said last time, he's ruling a city called Shechem, and he's ruling the surrounding countryside, but not a whole lot more than that. And it seems as if after three years of this, his own subjects get the point. It becomes evident to everyone that this guy is not going to rise to grand power. He's not going to rule the whole of the land. His vast empire is going to be little more than this city and the surrounding empire. And meanwhile, as we see here in the text, his vassals are required to send him tribute, to send him payment regularly. And all of this tells them this guy's just a little Napoleon using his... They didn't know who Napoleon was at the time, but you know what I mean. And they're just using, he's just using his limited range of power to rob us. And we really don't like this anymore. So they begin to resent him, as you would expect. Which is really ironic when you remember that they called Abimelech into power as king because they were afraid that they were going to suffer under the bad treatment of Gideon's other sons, remember? Well, be careful what you wish for. They just put a man in power who was going to do the very same thing. And after three years, they realize this is not a good situation and they choose to do something about it. The men of Shechem decide that they're going to rebel against the authority of this man Abimelech because they've selected an evil man, one who's contrary to God's will, I might add. More importantly, as we saw in the text I read, the Lord himself has inserted himself supernaturally into this situation, taking steps to ensure that this false leader cannot continue to remain in power for very long in Israel. And as I said last time, the Lord is using the evil spirit, that is a demon, to create discontent between Abimelech and those who are aligned with him. This is a good example of God using the evil of the world for good purpose as he deems necessary. And that's what he's doing here. And all that discontent now is going to boil over into civil war. Now, until the sins of Abimelech come back to rest upon his own head, and all the terrible things he did to Gideon's sons as well, this has to pursue itself to some end. God's got a point in this, and he's going to let it play out. You you and I are going to read this story all the way through today, and it may occur to us at some point that God's letting an awful lot of bad stuff happen. Why doesn't he just step in and cut it all short? You know, just, just have Abimelech die in his sleep, for example. Which is certainly something God could have done, but that's not going to achieve the same good purpose as he will achieve through these messier means, messier from our point of view. 
There's a lesson that needs to be taught as well, and not just for the sake of the people who lived in that day, but for us as well through Scripture. So God's going to let the natural sin of these people play out. And we're going to stand as observers this morning and learn from it. And it all begins, we're told, with the men of Shechem sitting in ambush for those who are traveling down the road that leads into the city. This is the opening verses we see where we're told that there are those who are in the mountains and they wait for those who come through the valley on the road and they ambush them. There's a road that passes directly between two high mountains, Mount Gerizim on the one side and Mount Abel on the other side. This is the main road that leads you into Shechem in Samaria. Anyone coming into the city would have had to travel through this pass, which would have left them very vulnerable to an ambush if you set up higher on those hills and wait for them. And it would appear as though Abimelech had required the surrounding region to make payment of tribute and taxes to him, and that those taxes were being conveyed into the city of Shechem by means of this road. And therefore, the men of the city of Shechem decided they'd had enough of seeing all the wealth of the surrounding region fall into Abimelech's hands. They want it for themselves. So they begin to steal the tributes by attacking those who come in with their tributes on that highway. And eventually, as you hear, the news gets back to Abimelech that they're robbing him of his tribute. But of course, the real point in all this is not the money. The main point is to demonstrate that they no longer accept his authority and rule. They're challenging his authority by taking this step. Even more troubling for Abimelech, though, there's another problem on the horizon. You have this other man who comes on the scene, coming into town. His name is Gael. He's a Canaanite, and he's opposed to Gideon's family. He's opposed to Yahweh. He's opposed to anyone who would worship Yahweh. And so he's opposed to anyone who's associated with the Lord. And remember, Abimelech is technically a son of Gideon by way of the slave woman. So from Gael's point of view, Abimelech's no different than the rest of Gideon's household. And so he comes into Shechem, we're told, crosses over, in other words, he walks into Shechem, and he begins to win over the men of the city. And he makes a very similar kind of argument that Abimelech himself made when he came to power in the beginning. He says, why should we be ruled by people who are not of us? Now when Abimelech made that argument, he was comparing the sons of slave women who were residing in Shechem to the natural born or free born sons of Gideon who were back in Ophrah. Now, it's the same argument, but done in a different way. Gael's saying, we Canaanites should not be ruled by them Yahweh worshippers. Same idea, though. And again, it's compelling. The people in Shechem apparently don't have a whole lot of sense in them because they keep falling for the same argument over and over again. Now, to cement the alliance, they decide they're going to have a big festival. They go out into the field, they take grapes, they make a quick wine, it would seem, and then they worship their pagan god with this festival. And that's the point here. It's saying, we want to be pagans again, Canaanites again, not Yahweh worshippers under Abimelech. And in the process, they curse Abimelech, which is another way of saying they enter into a conspiracy against him. They declare their loyalty to one another and not to Abimelech. Now, in the course of this feast, Gael says something provocative. He says, not only should the city now serve him and not Abimelech, but in it, he calls out Abimelech. And he says to Abimelech, go get your army and come beat me. Now, why would he say that there? Because obviously Abimelech's not present in that place. Well, he issues this challenge knowing full well that Abimelech has his allies in the city. Some of them are probably in that room, and it won't take long before the word gets back. And so, essentially, Gail's declaring to this room, not knowing who the spies are, go tell your man I'm ready to fight him, go get his army, come back here and and challenge me as he should. Sure enough, in the room is the ruler of the city, Zabel. 
And this king sends messengers back to Abimelech and informs him of what's taking place in the city and calls Abimelech, come on back here and put this guy down. He's challenging your authority. Okay, so that's where we are now. The scene is set. It's like an HBO television series at this point. Verse 34. So Abimelech and all the people who were with him arose by night and lay in wait against Shechem in four companies. Now Gael, the son of Abed, went out and stood in the entrance of the city gate, and Abimelech and the people who were with him arose from the ambush. When Gael saw the people, he said to Zabel, Look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. But Zabel said to him, "Eh, You're seeing the shadow of the mountains as if they were men. Gael spoke again and said, Behold, people are coming down from the highest part of the land, and one company comes by the way of the diviner's oak. Then Zabel said to him, Where is your boasting now with which you said, Who is Abimelech that we should serve him? Is this not the people whom you despise? Go out now and fight with them. So Gael went out before the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. Abimelech chased him, and he fled before him, and many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. Then Abimelech remained at Aramah, but Zebul drove out Gael and his relatives so that they could not remain in Shechem. Now it came about the next day that the people went out to the field and it was told to Abimelech. So he took his people and divided them into three companies and lay in wait in the field. When he looked and saw the people coming out from the city, he rose against them and slew them. Then Abimelech and the company who was with him dashed forward and stood in the entrance of the city gate. The other two companies then dashed against all who were in the field and slew them. Abimelech fought against the city all that day and he captured the city and he killed the people who were in it. Then he raised the city and sowed it with salt. It's a complex scene, but it's not too hard to break down if you just take it in steps. So first you have Abimelech executing this plan that Zabel suggested to him for defeating Gael. He comes to the fields which surround Shechem. So if you imagine cities in these days, their cities were typically walled and set up like little fortresses in the middle of a field, typically on a high point if they could find one. And then around them there would be clear open land, usually farmland, but it was designed so that they had a vantage point from within the city. They could see if there was an army attacking them from any direction. They had a clear view of the surrounding countryside. That was the the norm. So this is the setting for the city of Shechem as well. And Abimelech comes to the city in four companies, four groups of men. The suggestion is that they're coming from cardinal directions. They're coming from north, south, east, and west. They're surrounding the city. It's happening in early morning. And I want you to get the impression not of bright morning, but rather of the first light of morning where you can kind of see, but it's not quite clear yet before the sun has come up above the horizon. So in that early light, you have Gale standing in the gate of the city. Now what's he doing? Well, this is the day after he issued that challenge. He knows full well that Abimelech's going to come at him, and he's waiting for that. So he's watching outside the gate of the city to see if the attack is coming. And with him standing next to him is the king of the city, Zebul. So it's interesting, Zebul has apparently been able to maintain some semblance of alliance with Gael. In other words, he's clearly on Abimelech's side, but it's not altogether clear to Gael which side the king is on, the city's leader is on. So they're standing there together. And as Abimelech's army starts rising up out of the fields on the hillside to make the attack, seeing the gate open, seeing Gale standing there, Gale looks up and sees the motion. And of course he makes the comment, I see people coming, and realizes he's under attack. Now his plan must have been to stay in the city and defend the city from within the walls. And now he's aware that the attack is coming. But Zabel, and you've got to love this guy, he's trying, right? Zabel looks at this and says, no, 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 that's, that's not an attack, you're fine, don't worry about it. Oh, look at that, a deer. Isn't that nice? 
Don't see those this time of year very often. And, and Gail's not having any of it, right? Gail looks up and he says, oh, now look, you think I'm a fool? I can see those are people. They're coming at us right now. They look at the armies. In fact, I can see one there and another one coming from over there. And then at that point, Zabel realizes his deception isn't working. And so then in verse 38, he turns on him and says, Aha! Now let's see who's boss, right? Now let's see if you can beat this guy. So in verse 39, we're told, Gael leads the leaders of the city into battle against Abimelech. So it appears as though some stayed in the city, some went out into the field. And the city leaders, we can tell, have aligned with Gael. What that tells you is, everybody's in this battle for life or death. Once the city leaders put their life, as it were, in the hands of Gael, if Gael loses this battle, they're dying with him. So they have chosen their side. And it's against Abimelech. And then the battle ensues. We're told Abimelech's forces are victorious in the field. They kill all the soldiers who've come out of the city for the battle. But they don't get into the city. By the time they're done with that battle, they've locked up the gates of the city for the ones who stayed behind. And there's no way for him to get into the city at that point. So where does he go? He goes home. Back to his town. So they've succeeded in defeating a portion of Gael's forces, but they have not recaptured the city. And of course, the the city has aligned itself against him, and he's not going to be happy with that. He's going to eventually want to take the city back. So in verse 42, we're told that Zabel, from within the city now, starts to battle on Abimelech's side, and he forces out those who were aligned with Gael from within the city. He kicks them back out of the city. They must have done fighting within the city. And later, Abimelech is told that, guess what? After you left, Zebul kicked out the guys that you want. They're now outside the city. They're vulnerable. They're out in the field. Why don't you go back and get them? And that's what Abimelech does. He takes his army back to Shechem a second time, now splitting his army into three companies. And he's done this because he's not going to get locked out of the city twice. So with the two companies he battles in the field, but we're told the third dashes to the gate and holds it open and doesn't allow them to shut the city back up again after the first group was sent out. So now he defeats those in the field and goes back into the city with his third company and eventually defeats the full city internally, kills those who are in the city, we're told, and then he sows it with salt. Now, if you put enough salt in any ground, you kill it, basically. You can never grow anything. And though it's unlikely that he was able to sow the entire city with salt, that's too much salt to imagine anybody could carry effectively, it's not meant to be so literal. It's meant to be more symbolic. It's like shaking the dust off your sandals. It's a symbolic act with, with meaning. And the symbolic act of bringing salt into the city and sowing it, so to speak, doing it to some extent, is a symbolic way of saying this city will never be inhabited again. Not as long as I'm king, in other words. So it's a complete destruction of the city and all who opposed him. But the rebellion's not over yet. Verse 46. When all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the inner chamber of the temple of Elberith. It was told Abimelech that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. So Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, he and all the people who were with him, And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a branch from the trees and lifted it and laid it on his shoulder. Then he said to the people who were with him, What you've seen me do, hurry and do likewise. All the people also cut down, each one, his branch, and followed Abimelech and put them on the inner chamber and set the inner chamber on fire over those inside, so that all the men on the tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. So you now have the destruction of the city followed by Abimelech learning that some of those in the city had escaped. He hadn't managed to kill them all after all. Actually, a thousand of them had escaped. 
And where they took up refuge was in that nearby military fortress. We heard about it briefly a couple of weeks ago. A military fortress that was attached to the city, but it was its own structure, its own walled structure. They had all run into that tower for protection after the city fell. And of course, Abimelech's not satisfied with the degree of retribution he's already exacted. He wants it all. So he calls upon his army, as you heard, to each cut down a branch. He end up with a bunch of people all carrying branches. And they all run up to this tower and they just start laying them around the inner chamber of the tower, which I'm not sure exactly what this tower chamber would have looked like, but it's probably something on the order of a very small little castle. And don't think too big. If you've ever traveled in that part of the world and you've seen ruins, one of the things that you're typically struck by is just how small everything is. You know, and you imagine these things big in your mind, but they're really the structures were quite small. Cities were not that big. So a small structure, but with a thousand people crammed in it. It probably only had a thousand people because it's probably the most you could pack in that space. And then the whole thing goes up in flames. These people are cooked to death from the smoke, from the heat, whatever. They all die in this tower. Now, at this point, with all that's just happened, and particularly the end there, it's obvious this is a guy out of control. This is a tyrant operating in pure rage, bloodlust. This is nothing like a man led by the Lord. This is nothing of the sort of thing you'd expect from a man who is being directed by God. And I am not saying, by the way, that the Lord does not at times direct his people to take life, as he often did in the Old Testament and and did for good reason. But this is beyond that. This is wanton bloodshed. And not being content to simply destroy his enemies, he wants to make a point of everything. And then you would think this would be enough. I mean, after all, this is a pretty dramatic end, right? But it's not. He now goes the next step and takes his bloodlust further. He begins to attack a neighboring city that had nothing to do with the initial offense. Maybe just out of suspicion or paranoia. But in any case, verse 50, Then Abimelech went to Thebes, and he camped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower in the center of the city, and all the men and women with all the leaders of the city fled there and shut themselves in, and they went up on the roof of the tower. So Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and approached the entrance of the tower to burn it with fire. If it worked before, it'll work again, he thinks, right? But a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head, crushing his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, so that it will not be said of me, a woman slew him. So the young man pierced him through and he died. When the man of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, each departed to his home, Thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father in killing his 70 brothers. Also God returned all the wickedness of the men of Shechem on their heads, and the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerobel, came upon them. So Thebes is probably the modern city of Tubas, if you wanted to go look it up on a map. It's just northeast of Shechem. There is no reason in Scripture given for why Abimelech decided to attack this place. So it's all supposition, whatever you might think. I would suppose he's just operating in pure rage at this point and paranoia. I mean, once you get up ahead of steam like that, you just keep rolling, right? That seems to be what's going on with this guy. And this city, very much like the last one, had its own strong tower. People flee there just as they did before. He's ready to go light them up again. Whole thing second time. But he can't get the plan going in this case because a woman, as you heard, drops a millstone. Now, a millstone is a large stone. and You know what a mill is, right? You're grinding grain down to flour. And there's the large kind that you turn with oxen. But then there were also smaller ones that a woman could use in making her own preparation in her home. So we're talking about a stone that's heavy, but it's, you know, average person could lift and throw over the wall, throw over a roof. 
But you know what? You take a stone, decent-sized stone, and you drop it from a tall tower on someone's head, it hurts. And in this case, it says it crushes his skull, but now the guy's still talking after it's over. So what we have to keep in context here is you can have a really bad head injury that for the time of this age, you know, in the kind of medical care that was available in this age, was for all intents and purposes fatal, just not yet fatal. And you can see it coming, right? It'd be like a bad wound in the side. Or, you, know, you know this ain't good, and it's not going to turn out well, but i still got enough life in me to think about it for a while. It's kind of like that. And I wouldn't be surprised if he was knocked unconscious, at least at first. Maybe he came to, maybe he realized, oh, I'm not going to make it, whatever. But whatever the case is, he makes the assessment, and rather than die from that injury, as you heard, he would much rather die by someone piercing him through, because he doesn't want anyone to be talking about him later as if he died by a woman. I mean, God forbid that maybe three, 4,000 years later, people would still be talking about the fact that he was killed by a woman. We don't want that. We don't want to see that happen. So... Let's have him killed by one of his own guys. That's a much better outcome. And then no one will have to know about this little inconvenience. Yeah, he wants to avoid that. So after he dies, this is actually one of the more interesting parts of it. It's a brief statement, but I think it's really the key statement in here other than the commentary that Samuel makes at the end. And that key statement is, after he dies, all his people just go home. Right? So there's no community interest in what he's doing. In other words, this is not the movement of a people unto some great outcome that they've all aligned for. This is just, our guy told us we have to do this stuff, and now that he's gone, we're done. We don't want to have any more to do with this. Completely, the focus becomes him and him alone here. There's nothing here beyond Abimelech. Samuel says in verse 56, All of what just transpired is how the Lord repaid this man for his wickedness to Gideon's Family. So, so in other words, with all that we've learned about this, this week and, and a couple of weeks ago, you need to understand all that transpired as having happened under God's hand. He sent the evil spirit, we heard that, but beyond that, he orchestrated the events. He dictated the outcomes so that what happened to Abimelech would be according to the plan God set forth, so that we would know the full outcome of his own treachery and see how it played out all the way in a, a sort of circular pattern through the lives of others and back onto his own head when it was all said and done. So that his death would be dishonoring, yes. And I'm not saying, by the way, that a woman being the actor in the process made it dishonoring in God's eyes. I'm saying from a human perspective, that's the way the culture viewed it, and God used that against the man's reputation. You know, as you think about that for a minute, you wouldn't be the first to be challenged by the notion that the God you serve, the one that we know from Scripture is loving and merciful and kind and full of gracious loving kindness for those who are His. All of that can be true and at the same time, our God, a God of wrath and judgment and vengeance, is able to do what he did in this story through the evil of others, through, through evil spirits and the evil hearts of men, and do it all and remain righteous nonetheless. That is an absolute truth of Scripture. He is not the author of sin. He never tempts anyone to sin. But he uses evil as it exists for good purpose to accomplish things that ultimately arrive at just outcomes. And in the way Samuel summarizes it here, you get the point very quickly. What is the just thing for a man like Abimelech, considering all we know about him? What would be justice in his cause? It has to be an outcome that not only results in him paying the due price, which is death, but to do so in such a way that it would illustrate the deserved nature for such an outcome. It's as if his own life is the prosecuting attorney at his trial. 
And as that case is laid out for us, we're the jury. We have no reason to second-guess God's decision as judge in this matter. Everything makes perfect sense, even to the point that he leaves this earth in a way that is considered dishonoring to those among him. Samuel says, likewise, for the men of Shechem. Remember, it wasn't Abimelech alone who did what he did. He would never have been able to go kill all the sons of Gideon if he had not had the support of the men of Shechem, those worthless fellows we hear about that aligned themselves with Abimelech and went and did the deed with him. And Samuel says, those men of Shechem likewise experienced judgment for their wickedness in what they did in working with Abimelech. And then notice that Samuel adds, all of these things happened in keeping with that prophetic curse that the one remaining son of Gideon pronounced. Jotham, remember when he said that these things would all happen to the men of Shechem and to Abimelech because of what they had done to Gideon's family. I speak on God's sovereignty anytime I can. I teach it from Scripture because it's evident everywhere I go. I can only marvel, though, when I see it playing out in, in a story like this, how God has turned people and events precisely to get to his own desires. I mean, for example, Abimelech was able to defeat the city of Shechem, which appeared to be... A victory for the bad guys, right? Except that now you see the Lord was simply using Abimelech to punish the men of Shechem for killing the sons of Gideon. And then once the people of Shechem had paid the price, the Lord turned his attention back to Abimelech and used the woman to kill him, right? So he didn't even need an army when it was all said and done to put Abimelech down. That's the amazing thing of God. Is he can take the sin of one, use it to chastise the sin of another, and then find a way to bring everything back on the first so that no one is left out of the equation. And he could have done that for us, by the way. You know, before you and I were saved by grace through our faith in Jesus Christ, we were no less guilty than these were. We may have committed different crimes in our way of looking at the world. We think of certain things as worse than others, but it only takes one sin to put us outside heaven, right? So whatever sin you want to list, they're all equally damning in the end. So before you know the Lord, you're really in the same situation. Think about how much the Lord could have done, given his wisdom and power, to bring all of what you and I have done and put it back on us and been very just in doing so. And done it through any number of circumstances. But, but what stopped that cycle? What stopped that cycle in our life was none other than the mercy of God in Christ. And as he offered us that grace through faith, he put Christ in the middle of that cycle, if you will, and all that would have come back on us was on him. That's the message of the gospel. I'm hoping that this story is broadening your understanding of how the Lord works, how vast his network is in life of of sovereign providence in the affairs of everyday life. But look at the chain here. He allows Abimelech to rise to power. Why? Well, it's a means of demonstrating the evil that was in the people's hearts at the time by virtue of what they did in selecting and allowing him to rise. Then he allows Abimelech to kill Gideon's sons. Now, why would he allow that? Well, to illustrate how Gideon's own actions in keeping a slave wife and producing sons to that wife had evil consequences. And then the Lord spares one of those sons. Why? So that that son could be used by God to pronounce a curse on the leader so that the justice that he was due would be seen as coming. And then he allowed the king to rule harshly for three years to demonstrate the foolishness of their desire in wanting him. And then after three years, he proceeds to judge Abimelech for his sin and all that he's done, and he brings that evil spirit, and he creates dissension, and he uses Abimelech to judge those who had partnered with him. In other words, there's a link to every action to some other action, and all of it in a cycle that brings justice. The whole thing is a sad lesson in how far depravity and sin can take us if it's left unchecked. But it's really a story, it's really a tour de force of of a story on the sovereignty of God. 
Well, we have a few minutes to go further today because I'd rather not leave on that kind of a down note. You know, I, I realize the story has got its own attractiveness in some respects, but for me, it's, it sort of doesn't leave a great taste in your mouth on a Sunday morning, right? So let's leave this for a moment, not overlooking or trying to explain away, for that matter, how God is capable of orchestrating all these situations, uh, knowing that men's sin is, is their own matter, but God is in control of how things are working. But now looking at it historically as you move out of this chapter, this is a low point in Israel's time since Joshua. And the reason I say that is, look at the people. They're rudderless. You don't have a judge right now. For three years, they've had this guy running part of Israel and no other judge evident in the land whatsoever that we know of. Gideon ruled for many decades, but his heart wandered, as we saw at the end. Then as a result of that, the people were left in this state of rebellion. And from there, it was just a short step into civil war. And now we've watched that play out. But as a low point, this is the first time in Israel's history as a nation that they actually fight one another in any kind of large battle. This is a new pattern, and it's one now that's going to continue. In a way, this is really Gideon's legacy. This man, in the way he left the earth and his sons went forward, he introduced the idea of civil war, Jew upon Jew violence. And of course, I don't mean that Gideon wanted it that way. I'm saying that as a result of what his family did, we see the introduction of Jews fighting one another. And it will continue as a pattern throughout the time of Judges and beyond. But has the Lord stopped ruling His people? Not at all. So let's look at the aftermath after Abimelech's death. That's what we'll finish on today. Verse 1 of chapter 10. Now after Abimelech died, Tola the son of Puah, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, arose to save Israel. And he lived in Shemir in the hill country of Ephraim. He judged Israel 23 years, then he died and was buried in Shamir. After him, Jair, the Gideite, rose and judged Israel 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities in the land of Gilead that are called Havoth Jair to this day. And Jair died and was buried in Canaan. This will be the last thing we cover today. It's the two judges who preside over this relatively peaceful period in the land. And it's just a footnote, if you will, to the time of Abimelech. There isn't really anything much said about these men, except perhaps the second is really our focus. His rule, Jair's rule, seems to have arrived at a similar end to Gideon. I think that's the point that you see Samuel making here by listing these two judges in this brief way. You have Abimelech, an illegitimate king, illegitimate ruler, But after his bloodshed, you reach a period of stability with that first judge. Tolab rules without anything remarkable for a total of 23 years. And then he dies, and another man arises. Now look at the description of him. 30 sons. Does that remind you of anyone? How do you get 30 sons? Do you think you get them from one wife? God help her. Some are trying. But I don't think they're going to get to 30. The point being, this is a man who has launched into polygamy again. First mistake, right? We already noted that that's one of Gideon's issues. Second thing, they got 30 donkeys, one apiece. Now, why is that significant? Well, this is in an age prior to the introduction of horses. So the best animal they had to ride on was a donkey, and it was a relatively rare thing for someone to ride around on a donkey. If you had enough money to have a donkey, you put it to work in the field. To have one extra you just rode around on everywhere, that indicated a kind of wealth or a kind of status, a king-like status in the culture. So you got 30 sons, each of them who think themselves a little king. And then you got 30 cities, well, you don't have 30 cities unless you're taking on great wealth. In other words, this is a sign of his wealth. So you have, once again, a man who in all respects is mirroring the thinking of Gideon. 
I'm a judge, I'm going to use it to my advantage. And where did that leave the nation of Israel the last time somebody did that? Well, it's going to happen all over again. Because with what Jair does, you have now a new round of sin and punishment and civil war that kicks off after his death, just as we saw happen with Gideon. And that's where we'll be next week in verse 6. You're going to see the cycle that we've come to know so well in Judges happening all over again. And where did it begin once again? With leaders who saw their position as an opportunity for themselves rather than as a means of serving God's people. A lesson we'll look at more next week. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and then our communion time. Heavenly Father, I pray, Father, that we will long and hard think about the sovereignty that is so evident in Scripture, Father, the the power of what you do and the, the limitless reach of who you are. So that as we face those trials of our own life, Father, you would remind us that there's nothing beyond your ability, that every circumstance has a purpose in our life, that things have been planned for us in the way they unfold long before we even gave them a minute's thought. Which is not to say, Father, that we give up, that we look at life as mere fate, for we know, Father, that you are orchestrating things to a good purpose and you expect us to inquire of you of that purpose to sit at your feet and understand it in your word, to serve you better through the experiences you give us. But Father, what it does do is it causes us uh, to rely on you and rest in you and, and to not worry, to not try to fix everything, to appreciate, Father, that the world is the way it is, for it has to be in your economy, to be content in that. And that peacefulness, Father, will transcend our understanding because it means we don't have to figure it out. And Lord, I pray that you would use the, uh, the things of our life in that same way for the sake of others. Counsel us against sin. Give us cause to concern ourselves with holiness. And let us, Father, be an example to others. Thank you, Father, for this reminder in your word. And let us come back in weeks to come. For we desire to know more, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.